The Sarah Lawrence Theater Program works, learns, and lives on the land of the Lenape, Muncie, and Wappinger peoples. We pay respect to the ancestors past, present, and future. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College. After which, we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us. But how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances and projects and keep us up to date on what is next stay tuned for the performance lab podcast hello welcome to the performance lab podcast my name is alia hunter you she her pronouns and i am a second year theater grad at sarah Lawrence college and i am jillian jaton i use she her pronouns and i am also a second year grad at sarah Lawrence college and today we have with us zach morris hello zach Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and share with our listeners who you are in case they don't know. So Zach Morris is the co-artistic director of Third Rail Projects, the company behind immersive theater hits, Then She Fell, The Grand Paradise, Sweet and Lucky, and most recently Ghost Light at Lincoln Center Theater's Claire Tao Theater. Zach's work includes site-specific performance, multimedia installation, art and environments, and experiential performance. He is particularly interested in creating projects that place contemporary art and performance in non-traditional contexts. Zach has been honored with numerous awards, including two Bessie Awards, and was recently named as one of the 100 most influential people in Brooklyn culture by Brooklyn Magazine. His work has been presented nationally and internationally with the support of numerous grants, commissions, and residencies, and he has had the pleasure of teaching, mentoring, and creating new platforms to support the work of artists both at home and abroad. Zach holds a BFA in directing from Carnegie Mellon University. Thank you for being here, Zach. No problem. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So for our listeners, Zach came and did a workshop with the graduate students at Sarah Lawrence a couple of weeks ago, just before the break. Can you help us sort of, we can collectively remember what it was that we did and, and could you um, sort of share with us how you came to that exercise, what you were hoping to communicate with it? Sure, sure. Well, um, first of all, I use he, him pronouns, and I just wanted to acknowledge that I am getting a chance to talk to you from uh, Lenape and Shattuck land. I'm here in Pauling, New York, and I had the pleasure of being able to come and hang out with you all for a couple hours that went very quickly, sort of delving into some personal points of inquiry that I have right now, and also hopefully um, sharing some some kind of uh, big picture ideas around immersive theater and specifically the notion of audience-centered design. Um, I think that it's a true thing that one of the things that Third Rail Projects, um, which I'm a co-artistic director with, um, along with Janine Willett and Tom Pearson, um, one of the things our work is often most noted for is really putting the audience in the center of our works. And, and that's really intentional. We spend a lot of time thinking about how to design projects. And so the experience is really happening for and, and perhaps inside of, of our audience members. And so, um, so in addition to sort of sharing a little bit of, uh, of the background, um, we kind of did a modified ritual um, that was born out of 
um, some past explorations that I had done with a group of co-creators um, born out of a piece called The Movable Feast um, and also a piece uh, called uh, Return the Moon, which all is kind of based on this idea of creating a communal experience. And so if I'm remembering right, what we did was we all sat in a circle. We all removed our shoes and placed them in front of us. We chose the name of someone who someone who is important to us, perhaps a mentor, perhaps uh, someone who 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 was feeling particularly resonant that day. Who um, was someone who inspired us? Is that true? Perhaps that mm-hmm. that might have been that might have been the prompt. I'm trying to remember who I wrote and how. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh huh. And then um, over the course of the next couple prompts, um, we would answer a question place the answer to that question in a bowl in the circle, in the center of our circle, and then move to sit in another person's seat um, to take a moment to, to sort of contemplate the shoes in front of uh, in front of us and answer questions about like what, and this is where I have to admit that I'm totally blanking on what some <laughs> of those prompts were because it was a very much like it was tailored specifically to this group and and I can't remember exactly what we did I think there was one there's a question like what is a question that you don't know the answer to Mm -hmm. something like that I'm also kind of blanking but they were really interesting (laughs) (laughs) Um, we were all enthralled and now we can't remember (laughs) (laughs) I believe one of them was look at the shoes in front of you and and describe a positive attribute Mm -hmm. um, of whoever you imagine might be wearing these shoes. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of this, we read all of the papers that we had as as kind of a group in the form of a toast. And so to Gregory Beyer, to Victoria Santa Cruz, to the people who we named, um, and also to not knowing, to wondering where I'm going to be next week, to all of these things. And and that really came from, again, some of these projects that I had been working on with, with a group of collaborators about how might we create a, a collective and shared ritual. Um, and that, that sort of format specifically um, came from one of my collaborators, Edward Rice, who created a, a co- contemporary, uh, contemporary ritual for collective loneliness, which we used in, um, in one of our pieces. And so the thing that I did with you all was sort of inspired by that. And I think my question around all of this is how can we design gatherings where as a group of people, we can have some structures and supports in place where we can find ourselves in a, in a place where we can be a little bit more open, a little bit more uh, perhaps emotionally vulnerable, and in a place where we can forge connections that we might not otherwise be able to forge sort of in our normal normal day-to-day lives. And and what is the power of immersive design or experiential theater that can be sort of a vehicle for for those connections? Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely felt that for sure. And it's interesting the the shoes too, they did a funny thing of like Every time I sat in front of a new pair of shoes, I was very conscious of whose shoes they were. Too. <laughs> and, you know, we all know each other quite well. So there was that sort of added a layer of um, of meaning to the whole experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So speaking of immersive theater, what initially drew you to immersive work? And 
I have a lot of follow-up questions about this, but I think let's start there and kind of like, what do you love about immersive theater and what do you continue to discover about it? We found our way to making what is now called immersive theater, sort of through a, a very a very complicated and, and multifaceted pathway. I went to school as a theater director and then found my way to New York, where I was very lucky to meet Tom and Janine and um, many of the other collaborators, um, many of whom we've been working with for decades now, um, and started creating work uh, in the downtown dance space. Um, and our work was both choreographic, but also theatrical. We included text and puppetry. Pretty early on, we we began asking the questions, well, who who are we performing for? And what are the spaces in which our work is happening? About that same time, we started to get commissioned to create site-specific work, which really opened a question around what does it mean to create a work for a specific place and also for the denizens of that space? And how might we create a work that is an offering to those folks as opposed to just kind of showing up and like plopping a piece of dance theater in the middle of their lives. Um, instead, what are the considerations around creating points of en entry for them? Simultaneously, we were really interested in creating large scale environmental installations. And those sort of two points of inquiry, I think, led us inexorably to creating work where we were navigating built or found spaces and having our audience members navigate those same spaces. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, sort of asking these questions around how can we center the audience's experience? How can we give them a, a transformational experience, not just as a passive observer, but as an active participant in the work that's happening? And, and I think that over the years, that, that really continues to be an exciting question for me, is how, how and why must an audience be there? What, what can happen only with a group of people in a room? And, and what does that afford us, especially um, in this moment, um, coming off of the two, two and a half years now, in, in all of the ways, how do we find connections and how do we build bridges and how can art be the vehicle for those really important fundamental human connections? Absolutely. Um, and I, you mentioned you mentioned this during our workshop and I, I heard you mention it again, uh, dance theater. And I know you said during our workshop that in your kind of early work, you were looking at, you were really drawn to dance, um, but you didn't quite have the words for it. Can you talk about like, why you were drawn to dance specifically? Sure. Uh, in movement. Yeah. So I I found myself being really drawn to dance, and I didn't. I don't think that I had the words for it until. Well, I think maybe that's it. Is that I? It didn't require words. It it was able to articulate more than I was able to write out in a script. I found that it afforded me as a creator the ability to create layers of poetic meaning and figurative meaning, which felt really resonant. You know, and true statement, I came from a, a classical theater background. And so I was not very much of a dancer when I got to 
New York. While I had taken all of the classes that I could um, mm -hmm. at university, I came and I didn't have a lot of exposure to contemporary dance um, or mm -hmm. the downtown post-post-post-modern dance scene. Um, and so fell in with some brilliant people who hailed both from a theater and a dance and uh, English background. And we began really creating these works that were a fusion of forms where dance was a medium, not a codified language. We were developing the, the language and the images that we needed to fit whatever vessel the, the piece was in. Absolutely. Yeah, like the dance serving the dance as one of the, the ways of communicating or one of the modes of, of, of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I've also seen like in in your work and kind of a lot of other immersive work that most of the performing is done. That like there are, I mean, like while there are like words and while there are like spoken exchanges, that there's a lot of a lot of interactions are done moving um and non-verbally, which I think is really powerful and kind of interesting as as sort of like a integral part of performing within immersive work, would you say that? Uh, I mean, I think it is definitely one of the one of the ways that uh, work that we're now calling immersive has manifested. You know, I mm -hmm. think that Third Rail and there are also a couple other companies out there who, kind of all at the same time, were were integrating immersive installation and site specific or site adaptive choreography. And I think the thing that I think perhaps one of the reasons that that combination became so resonant was we were giving our audiences an opportunity to navigate a world um, and to be able to not be told what was happening, but be shown. And so in that way, we could build our own meaning and, and navigate our own experience um, and sort of author our own experience. And so I think that there are... Um, I think that certainly that is one of the ways that immersive theater can be super duper powerful. Um, but I would also say that there are so many other types of immersion and um, and ways that experience can be designed that are not predicated on um, site-specific dance or spooky environments or any of those <laughs> things, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the thing that's so interesting now being uh, more than a decade out from the creation of Then She Fell is, you know, what are what are the different ways? What are the ways that are resonant now? What are the things that that we as creators need to create? What are the questions that we need to ask? And then what are the what are perhaps the experiences that we might sense that those in our community and other communities are are yearning for? And how might we be able to create those those points of gathering? I think that's a really exciting series of questions and one that I've been thinking about a lot. Like what is, I mean, I'm curious to hear you talk about this, the sort of how how your um approach to or your thinking about immersive theater or site-specific theater or experiential theater, like all these other names that we have for, you know, the series of things, the sort of series of Venn diagrams that you're working inside of, like how have your, has your relationship to that work changed over the last, I don't know, a couple of years, three years, five years, whatever feels like a significant number for you. Um, like how are, are, are your questions the same? Have they shifted? And then, and yeah, I'd love to hear you sort of um, speak to that. Sure. 
I think that, you know, fundamentally for me, I think I felt like there was a there was a shift that started happening for me around 2018, the latter part of 2018, where I I began really wondering about this idea of what does it mean to create for a col- for a, a communal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, how might we design for a large group of people to have a a shared experience? Much of our work um, prior to that had been really individ- had been really focused on individuals or small groups navigating a world, um, and and I began to have this question around what can we what can we build together, um, you know, and write. Um, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, in fact, before the pandemic occurred, uh, I was working on this piece that I mentioned, Movable Feast, which was kind of a point of inquiry around how do we, really the question was, how do we get a group of strangers to share a meal together? Um, and so that piece was an exploration of communal experience design and integrating food into that. And so that experience, um, which only ever had sort of a couple workshop draft iterations, uh, was that audience members found themselves through the course of this evening um, baking bread together, making soup together. Um, And some of these scenes were more overtly about creating recipes. Some of them were asking questions about how are we engaging as a group? There was one scene um, where audience members came and sat down at a beautifully laid out table and in front of them were cell phones. Um, and the one performer uh, who was in the room with them had a group chat. And so that scene, <laughs> which was at dinner, the only thing that the audience and the performer did were, was chat over, uh, was, uh, you know, and there were some prompts from the performer, but it was amazing. And also, I think all too often, an experience that we have where we're eating, but we're not paying attention to those around right. us. We're looking down at our devices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that work culminated um, with the creation of a huge, I don't know, 50, 100 foot long table. It was very big. Um, <laughs> where we all sat down, performers and audience and crew, um, and shared this meal that we had made together. Um, and so that um, that was certainly not an answer to a question, but but uh, one way of looking at a point of inquiry. And then when the pandemic hit and when we found ourselves asking so many of the questions that we are asking, um, contemplating calls for social justice, contemplating what does isolation mean, contemplating what are our beloved communities. Um, uh, we, uh, we, and by we, I mean a small group of co-creators began developing this work called Return the Moon. Um, mm-hmm. And sort of the question around that was, can you create a shared experience that is designed specifically for the Zoom platform? Even though we are so geographically disparate um, and on this weird um now ubiquitous platform, um, 
can we can we come together as a community? Um, and so again, we sort of used some of the the ideas of um, of asking for um, asking for responses from the audience and then crafting that into a shared a shared toast, which um, eventually manifested at the end. Um, I was just going to ask, have you seen maybe a, a bigger interest in immersive theater since the pandemic has started? Um, like, I, I think I'm curious about maybe audience members like seeking kind of like this greater or like more involved form of connection or engaging with art since like being shut out from it for so long. Yeah, I think that um, the pandemic has impacted folks' relationship to the notion of immersive theater or experiential performance in a couple different ways. On one hand, um, we're now operating with a whole new set of social proximity dynamics that we were not we were not thinking about three years ago. Um, in Then She Fell, for example, we um, we would take audience members by the hand. Um, in many scenes, you would be sitting inches away from a performer. Um, that type of physical intimacy um, comes with a lot more questions around it mm -hmm. right now. And so on one hand, um, I think... I think it's about, you know, we have all just lived through this. Um, how is that experience still living in our bodies? What are we comfortable with? What are we not comfortable with? Um, and I think as we're thinking about, um, for anyone who is creating live performance, um, how are we contemplating all of those things? And how are we taking care of our audiences? And 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 their embodied experience of the last couple of years um, and making sure that we're caring for them in the whatever design we're creating. You know, and on the flip side, I think that the pandemic highlighted um, and perhaps um, even magnified some of the things that I think make immersive or experiential performance um, so so resonant right now um we we are at a point in our history um and we're only a couple decades in where the interwebs are a thing you know mm -hmm. um and we are able to navigate content in a way that we have never been able to as as a species um and so our ability to engage with our stories is and, and the expectations around them are radically different than mm -hmm. um, any other moment of culture-making history. Um, and at the same time, the way that we're doing that is in a decidedly unembodied way. We are distanced by our screens. Um, and I think that there is a real dissonance that's happening in our bodies where we want the ability to navigate these stories. We want the ability to be able to move through them. And at the same time, we are yearning for, for sensorial input and we're yearning to be with other people. Um, and that is hardwiring that is millennia 
old, mm. you know? Um, and so I think that the idea of designing experientially um, is an integration of, of those two different things. And so I think that um, it'll continue to be a way and it'll certainly evolve and change. And as our technology evolves at the breakneck speed that it is, how the performing arts have to respond to where we are is is likewise going to change, I think. Um, I, I brought this up in when you were in class. I've been thinking about this a lot in relationship to your work. Um, an essay that we read last year about co-presence written by Philip Wesley Gates. Um, and he quotes a sociologist, Irving Goffman, um, saying that co-presence is when individuals are accessible, available, and subject to one another, um, which is, I think, really charged and interesting language. And it feels sort of related to what we're talking about of, um, you know, like, that is something that could be an incredibly freeing and, and beautiful thing, um, being accessible and available to one another. Being subject to one another is like a whole other, I think, layer, uh, has a whole layer of history and, and um you know, possible violence and all kinds of other things. And I'm curious, um, sort of, and all this is to sort of lead us up to a question around um, agency and consent in immersive theater. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about how um, how third rail projects or how you sort of think about that and how, if and how that has shifted again over the last couple of years um, in thinking about sort of like the blurred lines between um, audience and performer in this space where there are the, the rules are less clear. So I'm curious to hear you speak to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, um, <laughs> um, I think that the answer is it depends on the project. <laughs> you know, um, I think that there is a whole spectrum of, of agency that can be built into the design of any given project. Um, and I think that um, that being on being on any point on that spectrum can be incredibly powerful and useful for the work that you're creating, um, as long as it is thoughtful and intentional and mindful. And the reason that you're doing it is by centering the audience and centering the audience's experience. Um, and and I think that. I think that it's true that in the work that I've been creating and Tom and Janine have been creating and the work that we've been creating collectively, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of our process is focused on the care of the audience um, and creating spaces for them that are where they can be held, um, where we are creating clear offerings or invitations, where we are making a contract with the audience and then upholding that contract, um, as opposed to um, as opposed to relationships that are that can become really fraught, where um, where power is unclear. Um, where uh, agency is unclear, like we're, mm. I think that we try to create spaces in which one can have a transformational experience, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of scaffolding and there's a lot of support that needs to be created to take care of 
that the human hearts that are walking through your venue's door um, and spending a couple hours with you. Um, and so I think that I think that one of the things that has always been a guiding principle for us is that that our works are offerings, they're invitations, um, and that we are listening to our audience um, and we are responsive to them um, and we're engaging with them at the level in which they wish to engage, right? Um, uh, and and that takes a really um, a really focused performance practice to be able to um, maintain. Um, Tom calls it a stamina of attention, mm. um, and and to be present with someone, and and I think also, you know, perhaps Jillian, to your point, to to be vulnerable with them. Um, and I think that that um, that can create a really that can create a really transformative space, um, but it has to be done really, really mindfully. And and you have to practice it a bunch, and you have to beta test it a bunch, and you have to do it do a bunch of test audiences to see if you're actually doing what you hope to be doing. And very often you're not. You know, you, you're like, oh wow, we just made everybody in the room uncomfortable. Let's figure <laughs> out why we did that. What happened? Oh, it was because of this. We didn't create an invitation to sit in the moment mm -hmm. that we should have. And so much of it is really about um, really about listening to your audience and and creating those those very simple, very subtle choices that help them feel grounded and oriented. And they might be uncomfortable in a scene, but hopefully they feel safe. They feel held in the larger matrix of the work. Yeah, kind of um, kind of related to that. I was wondering if you've ever seen anything really not work well within the medium of immersive theater um, or like, as you were saying, kind of like things you've seen that you've had to tweak kind of along the way. I think that, um, I mean, uh, most of our rehearsal processes are just, I mean, because we are devising new models every time we're working, um, we're really in a research and development phase. And so we are trying, we are trying experiments and many experiments do not work, um, which is great, right? That is the only way that you learn. And so there are many, mm -hmm. many times when, um, when, when we're learning what is working by creating a hypothesis and testing it. Um, and then figuring out, oh, oh, it is actually what we need to do is this series of questions to be able to earn this big question that we want to ask. Um, so that is a process that we have in our own work, which is really iterative um, and really research driven, I think. Um, and and I will say that I have experienced um, several pieces of experiential immersive theater um, where I didn't feel like the creators were um, were taking care of the audience where we might be 
pushing for that, which is like scary or dramatic or sexy or this or that, you know, any do, do Sunday, 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 like any mm-hmm. of those things. Um, uh, but, but again, when there is, when there is a human who is standing there, that you can't know what they are bringing with them, um, mm. you know, and you, it is, I think, of the utmost of importance for creators to be thinking about how to care for those who have come to see your work um, and um, and to really question what is that, what are, what are we trying to achieve with, um, with whatever experience or scene that we're creating. Um, and ours currently is a culture and media of like bigger, faster, more sexy, more violent, more all of these things. Um, but it is so mediated through, um, through any of any of the mediating tools that we have. It makes me think about um, something that I'm I'm curious about in, in relationship to immersive work is where reality lives, <laughs> like where, like what part of when you're in an immersive experience, um, and I've been in a in a few, a, a small handful, like what part of it is inviting in the re- the reality of that moment, whether that's how I'm feeling, whether that's how the performer is feeling, whether that's the reality of the space that we're in, or um, you know, like sort of things sort of seeping through as opposed to, I think there's another sort of mode that it sounds like you're getting at, which is like, how do I make this immersive theater feel like an IMAX movie, you know, with 3D goggles and I'm like in a sort of sensory deprivation mode where everything is, um, I'm like overwhelmed or sort of being like uh, dropped into another world that has nothing to do with my world. Um, I'm curious about sort of the role of, reality in in these kind of um, fantasy worlds that you all are creating and if that's even a word that you how you would describe it yeah I I would say that I think that very often our approach is one of uh, of a real sort of uh sober reckoning with what is reality like audience members will always know that they are in a performance they will always know that we're not really in a castle in you know a magical land they will always know that however um i think that there is a willful and intentional suspension of disbelief that can be earned from audience members who are like, I'm willing to go along with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I am willing to pretend. Um, and and then the thing that gets really interesting is why I think this type of work can be so resonant right now is because what's happening is really happening. We are really sharing this space together. We are really breathing the same air. This is real. We might have agreed that the context around it is a fiction, but we're both really here. We're both really having this experience. Um, and I think that that speaks a lot to, I think, an interest that Tom Janine and many of our collaborators have of the kind of interdigitation of ritual and theater, um, because in in ritual, 
we find ourselves creating non-ordinary spaces of non-ordinary reality um, where we agree that the rules are slightly different. And inside of that, we can have a different kind of experience than we would in our day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so ritual is a thing that we as humans have been creating everywhere and in every era for as long as anyone knows, you know? And so it is like this sort of like ritual or symbolic thinking, um, I think is really resonant and, and it allows us to have feet kind of in two worlds, um, that which is real and that which is decidedly unreal. Um, and that is a really exciting space to be. Yeah, and and there's something about that that can create space for the real to come through in a way that it might not come through in our sort of mediated cell phone Netflix world. Yes, I that kind of brings me to um, a question I had about um, if there's any work that you do that's not immersive theater, um, and also like if you in like the in the shows you go see or like the um, media you engage with, like is there like, is it all immersive at this point? Or is there like stuff that's outside of it that you're really interested in or that really speaks to you as an artist? Yes, I am I am excited about the many, many ways that, the many forms that um, content can, can appear. <laughs> um, and, and I think I, and I think one of the things that I always ask myself as an artist is what is the form that this has to take? And often it, the form that a work takes is not the one that I or my collaborators thought initially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I think that something should only be quote unquote immersive if it has to be immersive. Otherwise, maybe there's another way. Like maybe it's a novel, maybe it's a book, maybe it's a film, um, maybe it's a video game. Um, and and I think that all of those forms can do something that experiential design or immersive theater can't. And immersive theater and experience design can do something that those forms can't. So it's really about matching the content to the form um, for me. And so uh, the things that I have been, I've been uh, delving into fairy tales and folklore a lot, which are beautifully expressed in the written world or in oral histories. Um, I have been excited about uh, some funny video games that my kids are playing. Um, I have been excited about visual art. um, and, uh, And I think that with all of those different ways of engaging with content, it it can unlock something different in the audience. Is this a work that Mm -hmm. exists in time? Is it a work that exists in space? Is it a work that exists in both? Mm -hmm. Is it a work that is inherently fragmented? Is it a work that is emergent? Um, And I think all of those are, you know, I, I imagine that all of those are different ways where we as human beings are trying to reach out to other human beings to try to articulate 
what it feels like to be us. You know, we we are in some ways very lucky to be able to communicate in all of the ways that we are, but each of our individual experiences is something that only we can know. Um, and I think that we're perpetually yearning for connection and we're yearning for community. Um, and there are things that we don't know and there's things that we can't know. And that is the conundrum of being a human being. And I think that those questions are ones that we are going to continue to ask in mediums and forms that we have now and mediums and forms that are going to be developed to speak to the moment that we find ourselves in. That's a good lead into um, a question I have about the sort of the field at large. We've obviously been through a pretty huge disruption to theater in general, but as you were mentioning specifically, immersive theater that is asking people to touch and be very close to each other and move around and all those other things. Um, what, where do you feel like we are right now? Like where, where is the field of immersive theater um, and or how, how do you, what's most interesting to you about where, where it could be headed? I think I'm most interested in not having any idea where we're headed, you know? <laughs> I um I I think one of the things that the last 3 years has shown such a light on for me and I imagine for many other people is that pre-existing structures and systems and those things that we assumed to be uh to be unshakable um are not and i and that some of these systems and structures uh need to obviously be questioned they need to be uh re-engaged with in radically different ways um and so i'm so curious about where we will be in five years, what what has this experience that we've all globally gone through, um, what will that mean in the ways in which we are trying to reach out to each other? Um, and I sincerely hope that it will be radically different than anything that we have seen before. Um, and, and I'm very hopeful that it will be. Mm. Yes. Um... Speaking of the future and things, um, I think in my in my research of a lot of I think like more mainstream immersive projects, um, I've noticed that the majority of the people producing, creating, taking part in um, immersive projects are cis white men, um, and I think that also kind of reflects the stories being retold sometimes um, within theater. Like I'm most famously thinking of Sleep No More retelling Macbeth, um, which is by Shakespeare, a white man. Um, and I think like the one exception I can really think of is Here Lies Love, um, but I would, I would really love to hear your thoughts on that, like maybe like why that's the case, um, or if that's like something that you have a different experience with in your work. Yeah, I mean, I think that systemic oppression and systemic racism has impacted the business of making theater and is fundamental to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the voices that were centered for so long um, were humans that looked uh, in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
so the the source material theatrically um, is incredibly biased in in one set of experiences. Um, and and I think the thing that is so important as theater makers right now is to be thinking about wh where who are you centering? Mm -hmm. um, whose experience are you centering? Um, you know, uh, are you experience are you centering your experience as the maker or are you ex centering the audience's mm -hmm. experience? Mm -hmm. um, are you centering uh, the perspectives? of people who look like you, who's not in the room, whose voices aren't there? Um, these are questions that I think uh, many theater makers are grappling with and trying to figure out how to, how to really make sure that this idea of creating spaces where a number of different voices can be centered um, and, and, speaking truth to whose voices are being centered um, and then creating the space so some people can step aside and let some other folks talk um, is really, really important. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that we need to be brave about that. And we need to be, if nothing else, we need to be listeners. Um, I think that there is a lot of listening that needs to happen right now. And uh, I, I, in the patterns of our culture and our society that I'm seeing right now, I'm frightened by how much speaking is happening and very, and I'm really wondering about the moments when, you know, our increasingly polarized culture, where are the moments where we can come together and, and listen and instead of talk at each other, perhaps speak with each other. Um, you know, those are some of my questions. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I feel like also um, immersive theater, since it's relatively new, it's kind of um, a unique opportunity to allow that to happen, to kind of break out of patterns that have um, existed for so long within the theater world. Um, yeah, do you see... Um, like, do you see steps being taken within the immersive world for that to happen? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there are a number of companies that I am aware of um, that are doing like legitimate work to ensure that the the artists that are involved in the creation of that work are representing a diversity of experience and identities and perspectives. Um, and I think a real mindfulness about thinking about who, who is coming to see this work, mm -hmm. um, how accessible is it to mm -hmm. them? Um, what does it mean for accessibility to be built in as a given from the get-go, mm -hmm. um, not as an afterthought? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, again, it is... It is exciting to me because I don't think that anyone has it solved, but I think that people are asking the right questions and they're developing new models. And I think that that's what's so, so fundamentally important is that we need to make our own tools. We can't rely on the tools that have been given to us um, because they are inherently flawed in some ways. And so 
um, we need to create our own models. We need to create the, the ways in which we work that are representative of the values that we purport to uphold. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you, have you found like, is, <laughs> what have you found in that sort of in that inquiry or in that research? Like, is there any, have you sort of um, any, any nuggets that you've been able to sort of hold on to? I think that in in the work that I have been doing and with the cohort of artists that I've been working with, I think one of the things that feels uh, profoundly transformational is um, the ability to like build the muscle to hold multiple truths um, uh, and to... Uh, and to be able to look at a question um, and not find the right way to look at the question, but find all of the ways to look at the question. I find that so often in our culture, um, we are we are pushed to find the right answer um, to solve a a problem, um, and I find it incredibly liberating to be able to find the many ways that we, the many different ways that this problem can be solved from many different angles. And that solution is, is, is not fixed, you know, that these are processes that are ever evolving. And I think it is that state of not trying to fix a, We've made a committee, and so everything is fine now. Um, but you know, instead, be in an ongoing conversation and process around all of these things um, that keeps it alive and organic and complicated and sometimes uncomfortable. And I think that that is where we need to be um, to be able to continue to evolving and to continue to make the work that we need to make, but also make the work that we need to make in the way in which we want to make it and to have it be made. Um, mm-hmm. That is, that is supporting, supporting of the values that we, that we're, that we're wanting to put out to the world. Right. I think also um, you mentioned accessibility and that, that was something I was thinking about heading into this interview with like, sorry, with immersive theater. Um, because it does like involve having like a lot of projects involve people walking and like going upstairs and also um, having a lot of sensory input at one time. Um, And I was kind of curious about like, and like you saying that like, you know, like building accessibility in the process, like from the beginning versus like having an afterthought, like how do you do that? Like when the, the space you're looking at like has like four flights of stairs with no elevator, you know, or, Something yeah, else like I mean, well, like you nailed it on the head. Mm-hmm. Then she fell's last building um, was a three-story building that was um, that was completely inaccessible to mm-hmm. um, folks who would require a wheelchair or walking assistance. Um, and I, uh, on one hand, I think that it is <laughs> about acknowledging that for far too long the arts have been. Um, we have just been uh, 
we've embraced a culture of scarcity, like, oh, it's the only building that we have. And so we might as well take it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you, because otherwise, how will it happen? Um, and that can't be the answer. Um, you know, and so so there are the things that I think individually we can do to be building um, to be building access um, from the get-go. Um, but I also think that like we're also talking about systemic um, oppression oppression and uh, you know systemic structures that are um, that are enabling that to kind of be the norm or something that you can just be like, oh, okay, but it's not. It can't be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it is, I think, both a combination of individualized actions and choices that we're making and, and hopefully a larger zeitgeist that is changing the, changing the conversation and changing, um, changing what what must be considered. Mm-hmm. I wonder um, what you think about immersive theater being part of that transformation, like being part of sort of maybe perhaps on a meta level, like um, you've talked about the work you make as something that offers space for transformation for the audience members. Um, and then, you know, in talking about like the kinds of transformations that we are going through and that we need to be going through as a field and as a society and as individuals, do you think of those two things that like you think of immersive theater as a tool for that kind of change or does one serve the other? I mean, absolutely. I think uh, Janine um, and a couple of the artists from Third Row Projects um, have, an, have an amazing ongoing creative relationship with a company called Albany Park Theater Project in Chicago. Um, and the first collaboration that that was born out of that relationship was a piece called Learning Curve, um, where uh, audience members found themselves cast as students in a Chicago public high school. Um, this is a youth, a devised youth um, group. And so all of the performers were kids who, that, this is their lived experience and they are performing as fellow students or as teachers. Um, and I think one of the things that is so transformational is that audience members literally found themselves walking in the shoes of of the of what it meant to navigate a day in the Chicago Public High School. Um, and you can read as many reports as you want about it, but that experience of walking down the hallway or being in yes, a, a poetic and figurative and a perhaps choreographed um, standardized test and the pressure of that, like you've, that becomes an embodied experience. Um, and that, that changes your perspective of these things that, that are being talked about. So on one hand, I think, yes, it is, it is remarkable to be able to find yourself having a different experience than that which you'd normally do in a day-to-day. Um, I also think that there is something transformational and perhaps revolutionary about what it means to center different ways of knowing, censored to, to center embodied ways of knowing, um, not just um, rational intellectual ways of knowing um, and, and ways of connecting um, 
I think that that is so fundamental to our humanity um, to re-engage with that. Um, and so on one hand, yes, I think that that is it. I think that on the other hand, again, we're in an inherited uh, system where uh, where theater and the arts are not cheap. It is really it is really a conundrum about how to create work and also make it. And so it is not only accessible to those who are financially privileged. Um, and how do you, you know, how do you square that? How do you continue to create the good work that you want to create um, and find the ways in which um, it is not only for folks who can pay a lot of money for it? And, um, and nobody has nobody has a single answer to that. Um, but I think it is one of those ones. That's a question that you have to keep asking. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of questions to keep asking, um, I, I say this might be our last question before we wrap up. Um, many, us and many of our listeners are sort of in an early or early to mid point of our sort of creative practices and careers. Um, sort of zooming back out, I'm curious uh, if there's anything that you could say to yourself um, when you were at your, you know, the beginnings of your career, what might that be? Or perhaps creative practice, either one or both. Um, I think for me, it would have been to, uh, I think I would have been a bit more gentle with myself. Uh, I think that um, one of the things, again, that that we have inherited is uh, there's a, a meditation teacher who I quite like named Tara Brock. She talks about the cloak of unworthiness that so often permeates our society um, and this feeling that we are unworthy. Um, and so we always have to push harder. We have to do better. Um, we don't deserve a good night's sleep. Um, and I think that um, that I didn't do a great job of taking care of my human spirit um, as an as an early career artist. Um, and I think that. Um, that that sense of scarcity um, around your own self-care only ripples out into the world. And so I um, and so I think I would encourage myself and and any emerging artist um, to take care of yourself um, and to take care of who you love and to take care of what you love. And I think that act of caretaking can be really powerful and can open doors and windows that, you know, the grind and the hustle will never open. I think that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you, Zach. Really appreciate you taking the time and chatting with us. Yes. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, uh, to all of our listeners, Thanks for tuning in and we invite you to um, tune back in to our next episode, which will, you know, be released sometime. These happen automatically. <laughs> they happen when we can, because as Zach mentioned, we're all very tired. <laughs> we're all very busy. Um, but thanks for, thanks for being here with us and um, we'll see you next time. 
To learn more about Zach's and Third Rail Project's work, please check out their website at www.thirdrailprojects.com. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network. In association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com.